today we really redefine these fundamental ideas of space and time as Immanuel Kant call it. I mean, this is the way human beings understand the world through uh, space and time. And we see that the idea of space is changing, fundamentally changing. And also the idea of time is changing, not the days or the years or the minutes, but the tempo of the time, the way time moves, the way we sense time, it's all changing. Welcome to Create New Futures, a show about thought-provoking ideas and practices you can use to create and shape your future in life and in business. Join Aviv Shahar, author and innovation strategy consultant, as he shares his proven strategies that have helped clients create breakthrough results. Aviv has guided executives at Fortune 100 companies, and now he wants to help you. Today's conversation brings to focus the shift underway for humanity at large. I'm here with Yair Asulin, an author of The Drive, a prize-winning novel, and a columnist for Haaretz, the leading paper in Israel, often described as the New York Times of Israel. Yair won the Israel's Ministry of Culture Prize, a Sapir Prize, and he was awarded the Prime Minister's Prize for Authors. In his thought-provoking columns, he describes the tectonic shift underway and the developments accelerating now. We want to explore all these deeply. Yair, it's good to have you here. Welcome. It's good to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Let me ask you first, how do you describe the broader areas of interest and the core inquiries that propel your work and the columns you write? I would describe it as my project is to understand societies, companies, and uh, individuals' consciousness. I'm curious about consciousness, the idea of consciousness. I think this is what uh, makes us human beings, the concept of uh, living inside of subjective story. This is what I'm trying to understand. And this is uh, my project in any fields, in my novels, in my column, when I teach. It's all part of um, my journey to understand the way the consciousness work. Beautiful. And we will want to circle back to that, the inner journey inside the broader, a greater journey. Let me go nevertheless directly to the column you published this week. You titled it, The World Needs Another Flood. My question is, how do you mean this? Because I perceive the idea of the flood, whether metaphorically or actual, to represent a major recast, a, a reorganizing event, perhaps a, an absolution and a release of the, the past. How do you mean this idea that we now need a, a new flood? I totally agree with you. I mean, the, the idea of flood, in, I don't know, every, some generations is changing according to the times. We have some kind of flood, some kind of a big paradigm shift, big change that actually erase or delete the non-relevant ideas, things, power, etc., and create a new story. 
this is what I mean that we need a flood. I mean, we are in times of huge changes and the flood is only the power who cleans the non-relevant things and actually give us the opportunity to create new ideas or things or eventually a new story, a new theory. So you are imagining either practically or a metaphoric and or very actual, some kind of a expunging event that will release us from the, the carryover of history that we no, no longer need in the face of the challenges we are facing today. I don't think that flood, it's a one specific, specific event or a one big tragedy. I mean, it's a state of mind of flood. As I write, wrote in, in the text, we have to understand that something fundamental is changing, that something fundamental is no longer relevant. The story that we tell, I, we talked about consciousness, the story that we tell to ourselves about our reality is not the right story anymore. We have to create a new story. This is actually the deep sense of flood because if we think about the biblical story, God actually looked at the world and said, I failed. I must create a new world, a new context, a new situation. And this uh, state of mind of flood is something that I believe that we need it. And if we won't uh, accept it or won't agree with this idea, I think eventually it will come one way or another. And then it will be a, a real tragedy. Was there a specific catalyst for this, Colin? In Israel, last week was very a very dramatic week, not in the big issues, but in the small uh, existential issues. Murder here, some terror attack uh, of Jews against Arab uh, there. I mean, I felt that we're no longer moved by uh, ideas or ideology or even human uh, emotions, but we move with the animal side of the human being raised his head. And I said, this is, again, like the biblical story, this is a time when you understand that something really doesn't work. So let's use this starter to trace the bigger arc that you are observing. How do you tell the high-level story of the last few centuries? So I see it, I don't think that it's, it's not only in the last uh, centuries, I think it's, it's how the humanity works. I mean... As I said before, I think that human beings really create when they start to understand that they, they are not only the heroes of the big story that God created or whatever, they can be the one who tells a story. This is when humanity really begins. We start to create stories. I think that in this moment, when we start to create stories, we start uh, this cycle that we create stories, we believe in, in the stories, they are relevant to our life. And then after one generation, 10 generations, it's changing according to any story, it starts to crumble. It's no longer relevant. It's not uh, reflecting our uh, existential life, etc. And then the old stories start to crumble and a new story start to create. This is what I call the times of how. I mean, there is two kinds of times. The times of what? It's that we all know the rules. We all know that we play basketball. And then you have to ask only what I have to do to win the game. Because I know what is a game. But in times of how, we no longer know 
how to act. We no longer understand the rules. We don't have the language to understand what's going on around us. And in times like this, this is time that, uh, as I said, the whole story is crumbling, is no longer relevant. And we're in a kind of a embarrassment. We're afraid, we don't know what to do. It's a very, it's really interesting times because in times like this, we can see how stories create, how ideologies create. And I think we are in a very tragic and uh, full of opportunities, uh, the time that we are living in. What, um, in your observation, happened at the end of the 19th century where you say that time made the sovereign state godly or gave the state the role of God, which you then describe was a main character of the story we played in throughout the 20th century. Yes, so this is what I call the age of politics, the age of the nation state. And I think it, it starts in the industrial revolution. I mean, the whole idea of industrial revolution gave human beings the sense that they can be God. They can put the nation state, I mean, it's no, in America, it's a bit different, but the, the European idea of the nation state, it's based on the idea that we replace God by the state. Everything that we thought that God has to do, now the state has to give us. And we, like uh, with the relations to God, we have to, we give our lives and the state give us all the other uh, benefits. And uh, I think that this story begins at the end of the 80s century with the Industrial Revolution and with the fundamental changes that are the existence of human being had. I mean, so I think this is the, what I think about the 19th century in this perspective. And, and then you observe that with those extraordinary powers given to the state, we see on the world stage uh, leaders like FDR, like Reagan, later Clinton, where essentially they are driven by the belief, the conviction that they, officers in, those, in this role, can architect and re-architect the world and shape reality. But the core observation you, you make in several of your columns is that politics no longer does that and that politics appear to now be playing a defensive game or a damage control game. So what is it, what is the exterior shift in, in the way you tell the story? And where do we find ourselves because of that? So I think it's a question of relevance. When you're relevant, you try to make the world better. I mean, in the 20th century, politics were relevant, the story of the age of politics, people believed in, people moved by the story. And in this kind of time, politics tried to, as you said, shape the world, create a new and better world, etc. When the any old story and the age of politics, it's only one story, but when the story become less and less relevant, meaning people less and less believe in the story or moved by the story, then the order starts to move from a relations based on relevance to relations based on power. The old order 
which is uh, something that we have to remember the contradiction between old order and new order. The old order tried to stop the train from moving, try to stop the changes. And this is what we see about politics today. I mean, in the 20th century, politics were the new power who start to try to shape a new world, as we know. In nowadays, we see politics as a power try to stop from changing to actually creating a new order. If you need to give a short name to the 19th century and then to the 20th century, what are the names you give to these centuries? So I don't have a specific name, but I can uh, define the 19th century, as I said, a century of the how and the 20th century as a century of the what. In a lot of ways, we are much more alike today to the 30s of the 19th century and not to the 20th century. A lot of people like to compare us to the these times, to the, the 30s of the 20th century, but actually we're in the 30s of the 19th century, which is a, a big technological revolution. And of course, as an outcome, a huge existential revolution, which creates a huge, deep and very exciting and also tragic uh, consciousness revolution. And your um, core observation there is that the shift that we're underway in the uh, 19th century, in the first half of the 19th century, brought the, the powers to be to a point of irrelevance, and that led to the kind of tectonic shift that played then and that we are in a similar way corresponding with a similar change today? Of course, because we have to remember that the idea of order is to order the world, is to order all the different consciousness that walking in the story. This is the idea of every story. When I write a novel, what, what is a novel? Is a way to order all the characters in the story to tell the story that I want them to tell. And uh, when the consciousness of the characters is changing, the order is changing. This is a rule that we must remember as I see it. I mean, when the existence of the people is changing, the story is changing, the order must be changed. And in days like ours, what we see is a new consciousness and an old story, a new consciousness, but we still live in old terms. I, the examples that I really love to give is uh, the story of the iPhone, which we call, we still, some people call it a telephone, right? But it's not a telephone, it's something totally different. The idea of autonomic car. It's not a car, it's something very, very different. But we still don't have the right language to describe what's going on. So we're still using a, an old language, which is no relevant anymore, and it creates a weird and a even dangerous gaps between what we think and the way we experience the world and the way we talk about the world. And I think this is, it will change, but we're in this, in this process. So we need a new language. We need a new story. We need a new interpretation because that's how we catch up to the developments and the changes all around us. Yes, as Ludwig Wittgenstein said, the limit of the language is the limit of the thought. I mean, we can think, really think deeply about what's going on now if we want to create a relevant language. We want to be able to create a new story if we want to understand that the old story is not relevant anymore. 
I mean, it's what I call the first step. There is a three steps and I describe it uh, in order to survive and grow. The first step is a self cannibalism. We have to take off from ourselves the old things that we believe that, they are, that we are them, but we are not them. It's only one implication that we had, but it's not the only, this is not what we are. We have to create a new story. The, what you call self-cannibalism is obviously best described in the transformation that makes a caterpillar into a butterfly. Just human life is, is a lot messier than that. In business, the case in point is the story of Andy Grove with Intel and his decision to cannibalize, to kill the DRAM business and going to microprocessors and ultimately they ultimately led to Intel's success. You're describing that the pioneers, the entrepreneurs, the people that dare to either discover the new story or tell a new story and actualize it by new policies or new strategies get to lead and shape the new reality that's emerging and ultimately get to shape the new story that's emerging. And I like to say in the 19th century, if you want to shape the world, you probably become an author or a philosopher. In the 20th century, you probably become a politician. In the 21st century, you'll probably be part of the technological revolution in some point of it, but yeah. In the first half of the 21st century, we will gradually journey here to, to ask what's going to happen in the second half of the 21st century. But I will seed the, the prospective idea that the very concepts you're sharing could be the opportunities in front of us. If you can participate in shaping or influencing the revolution of consciousness, which is what you're doing through the, the columns you write, Perhaps that by itself is another way to lead or, or to win. Anytime we use a word like lead or win, we are actually using a construct that's part of a story. It may be that we need to use different verbs altogether to thrive, to prosper, to open a space where things can grow. All those are, are plausible as we unfold the story that we are living into right now. Yes, I agree. I totally agree with it. But we have to... In order to do it, we must really, and I will say it again, we must leave the old terms that we used. I mean, this is something that, as I see it, it's fundamental. I mean, we must create new terms, create new ideas and something. And one more thing, I think that uh, when we talk about technology and technological revolution, we must remember there is a different between what I call the proletariat uh, of technology and the people who create the ideas, the concepts. Because technological revolution, more than it's a technological revolution, it's a conceptual revolution. I mean, we, this is a old thing of uh, creating a new story, but yes, I agree with you. The 20th century, primarily the second half of the 20th century after we came through two world wars, unfolded several complementing stories. Specifically, there is the interior story, 
and in parallel to it there is the acceleration of the technological revolution that we you're just describing there in the interior worlds Jung talked about the the Aquarian age and central to it was his individuation project the idea that we humans are going to become more individuated and you could observe that the hippie movement and all that followed through that led to the sexual revolution the environmental movement the second wave of the feminist and women liberation movement and then you have in parallel to that the technological revolution the beginning of transistors personal computers all the way to what you are describing now with the idea of the internet and the cloud mobile we still call them mobile phones so you emphasize in your columns this you take a view of how much of that shift from the centralized FDR government led into what you call the decentralized technologies which I recognize to be empowering or accelerating the individuation project what are the other plot lines in this story that you identify that, that are so important that accelerate us through this second half of the 20th century to what you're describing now as we need to learn to let go of the old story I think that you know I see it from an uh, an Israeli point of view but when I when I was teaching at Yale I had uh, this experience from the American point of view and I think that uh, in a lot of ways it's the what is really changing now is the way to know things and to talk about things I mean this is the old discourse around the social networks etc I think what they gave to the world and it's a very long conversation maybe we'll touch it in the more further in the conversation but I think that the all when people start to talk with each other when people start to share uh, information this is what creates uh, changes this is what changed the idea because and therefore I think that in the 20th century there were not two different stories interior and the political story they were it was one story that uh, actually got uh, in applicate in two ways in applicate in the interior way and the in the political way and I think this is what's so amazing about consciousness I mean it all starts in the way that people see the world in the way people understand the world the meaning that they give to what happening in the world when I teach writing I really emphasize this idea that the what's happening in the world it's not important what is important in stories is to is the meaning that we give to what is happening and I think this is something that we must remember when we try to understand what it's going on now it's not about the world it's about the way we see the world what do you see what do you observe that's apparent with the people that are most adaptable uh, easy to recognize in your story what are some of the characteristics or skills that they demonstrate that when you see people that are able to lead by changing consciousness and discover or live into a new stories what are some of the 
I'm asking you now about the interior, the interior dimension. What, what are some yeah. core observations you have there? At first, and the most important, the understanding that we live inside a story, that it's not the world as is, it's a story and it, it can change, it can crumble, etc. This is the most important thing. When I talk with someone, when I talk with an entrepreneur and he tell me, and he, and he can't understand the idea of the story, I know that something were wrong there. And when I talk with someone and he understands that we work with concepts and not with pure technology, this is something that I can I can contact with and I can't understand it. I think this is something that we must, uh, even if it's not uh, intuitive to us, we must work on it, on this understanding. It's only a story. This time is a story. The meaning that we give to things, they are very important. I mean, the story is very, very important. We want to be able to exist without an order, but still it's something that can be changed and we're not able to control on the changing. I mean, it's... So in, in a way to instantiate, by way of an example, what you're saying there is, so sure, there are data centers all around the planet that support the infrastructure of the internet. But what you're saying is that the internet and the cloud is first of all a concept, a story, and then we developed the infrastructure to it. And what we are developing and bring to what we bring to life through the internet and the cloud is the expansion of that story. And unless you recognize that, you're missing the bigger potential because it's not just the objective facts outside of you, it's that connected story that you are part of. Yeah, I think we can see it. I mean, the division between technological enterprise and conceptual enterprise is something that we can see in the world. I mean, Amazon, it's not a technological enterprise. It's a conceptual enterprise. There is no new technology there. It's a little tiny bit, but still the idea of ordering the world in some other way, this is what's so important about Amazon, so-called Google. It starts with a technological, uh, as a technological enterprise, but actually they made the big, actually the reborn of them where the, when they understood that they are a conceptual enterprise. It's not about the searching, it's about the data, it's about all this stuff. So I think that the, the, I like to think about what is going on today, that the internet revolution, it's like discovering America. There are three ways to react when you discover a new continent. The first reaction is to say, oh, I don't care about this, it's not interesting. The second way to react, it's to go to America to take the gold and going back to Europe to use the gold. And the most interesting and relevant and important uh, approach is to go to America and to develop a new continent. And this is what's going on today. The people I think they're most interesting and they will be the people who shape the new world. They are the people who try to create a new continent over the digital world, over the technological, through the technological revolution, but they understand that it's not only about technology and it's not only about businesses, because it's about really creating a new order. It's a terrifying uh, job, but it's, a, it's a, a job that people who understand it, they are the people who create the most uh, 
not only most important uh, enterprises, but also the most uh, valuable uh, enterprises. So in those three groupings you painted, initially there was a very small minority <laughs> that, that decided to immigrate to America. And then you had a fourth group, which were people that not so much that they were just going to the new world, they actually looked to escape the old world, either because of famine or because of religious persecution and so on. So it is interesting. Sometime you move into the new world because you can no longer stay in the old world. You basically need to escape it to survive. Or you've had the few pioneers who were compelled or inspired to discover the new world. It matters not, you cross the ocean. The unsafe, the unknown travel through the ocean to get to a new continent. That's the power of this metaphor, that story. I think you're saying something that it's very interesting. I totally agree that the, if we'll take it one step further, the tragedy of the strong people today, that they, are, they don't have the incentive to go to the new world and then they stay on, the, on behind, okay? I mean, in nowadays, the, as much as you're stronger, the less you're much less relevant to the world because you don't have the incentive to become relevant. You're very clear. What you're saying is when you're invested in the old paradigm and the power of the old paradigm, you are less likely to be irrelevant and to adapt. The one place where people trying to circumvent that pattern are obviously the large platform companies because they hold the power and they're trying to make the bridge to the future and we're seeing the struggle that they're encountering. But before we go to, to talk about these companies for a minute, let's just another comment on that bridge from the old world to the new world, the 20th century into the 21st century. Because you make continual observation in your columns about the failure of institutions. And we are seeing the failure of legal institutions, media and state institutions, practically all institutions are failing. And we can probably identify few key patterns of the failure of institutions. The first is ideological capture. The second is polarization and, and conflict and the loss of the middle ground where they can become inclusive to, to different populations. The third is the contamination and the breakdown of the information landscape. And the fourth is the, the main one you are asserting now, a loss of relevance. Because if you're not relevant to people, the currency of why people gathered around you in the first place is no longer there. The power evaporates from under you. So the provocative thing in these observations you make is what's going to happen with the state. Because you said the state was godly, and now the state is in a defense posture. My question is, what is the story you tell in your mind? Will we see the extreme end? The state will disappear and will be replaced by something else. Will we see the state more receding to the background as a background stage and something else will arise? And you may say that we are already in this story. I'm curious, how do you navigate how do you develop that story? What's going to happen with the, with the state? Because it, in fairness, 
we still don't have a credible replacement for the legal and the state institutions. So, as I love to say, I don't have answers. I mean, I don't know what it's going to happen, but I, I really know that about the state, as I wrote in a, my essay about the end of age, the age of politics, we grew up and we discovered that our father is not uh, the strongest, okay? We discovered that it's much more complicated as you described now with the fourth for uh, reasons. And I think that we have to remember when we try to think uh, about the new time that we live in, uh, one of the most interesting uh, trends that I see is, no, until the, until the 80th century, we used to live under the idea of craft, right? People uh, went to the tailor, we create their clothes, etc. And then we moved to the times of uh, mass production. We all were Levi's, right? And now we're in a lot of ways, we're moving back to the craft, but we are using tools of the mass productions. And I think it's not only existential uh, trend, it's also a political trend. Meaning we will see, as I see it, much more small communities, much more specific communities. If you think about this, the whole idea of the nation state, it's mass production idea. We will create one big uh, identity that it will fit to everyone. In, in Israel, we call it a kura ituch. I don't know how you can translate it, but the idea of everyone is the same, everyone shares the same identity, Judaism is the same, being Israeli is the same. And I think that what we see now, it's a lot of kinds of Israelity, a lot of kinds of, a lot of identities people share, but we still use tools of mass production. I mean, it's a combination that I can't really know how it will work, but I think that we must remember this trend of the specific from one side, but the of creation, which they are huge uh, and massive. So inside that story, I recognize it provides a new context and lens to think about the separatist movements we've seen in Europe over the last decade, where various groups want to reclaim their original identity. You wonder whether they're trying to go back or whether they're trying to go forward or both. One of your observations is that the, there is this polarity of the people that want to journey to the past and the people that want to journey in, into the future. I'm fascinated by what you just said a minute ago about the idea that we are moving into new crafts. What are some of the new crafts that you see emerging? What are they? How will they show up? I don't know if it's, it, I'm not sure that it's a new craft. I mean, we're, in a lot of ways, we're moving back to the old crafts. The idea that I will create my own pants with the tailor, but the tailor won't use what, I don't know, will be in small shop in the street. It will be in a digital store online and he won't uh, create my pants it all, also only will send me some uh, manuscript and I will uh, print it in my 3D printer, okay? But the idea that I create my own clothes as I like it, and I, cre and I, I don't know, can get 
we now everyone talks about the whole idea of private health, that I can get a specific treatment that fits to me specifically. It's something that it again. I'm going moving back to the I, the consciousness. It changes my the, the human being consciousness. People are no longer can agree. The idea that we'll go to vote in a, I don't know two or four years, and it will be only this, and then people, the politicians will do whatever they want to do. No, we are involved in the world. We are voting on social media hundreds times a day. I mean, this is it's they're all part of the same picture or the same trend that uh, we are much more involved in the in shaping the world. And I think that uh, we can see it in uh, the younger generations that they are much more involved, not politically involved because they don't care about politics anymore. They don't believe to politics as I see it. They are involving in a climate change. They are involving all the educational changes. I mean, you can see it in a lot of fields. In one of your columns, you observed that the telephone, the car, the postal service, the the mass education system and blind knowledge were the characters of the 20th century. I'm beginning to get the sense through what you're describing now that your ability to curate your story and curate your digital environment is one of the central characters of the story that's emerging now. What are some of the other central characters, to use the, the story a frame here, what are the other characters that are emerging in the new story? I think you said a few minutes ago, smaller communities, local situations, perhaps they are a character too. What other characters do you see, both when you look in Israel, where you see in Israel the new that's, that's emerging and, and globally? I think that it's everywhere and everything. I mean, as I like to say, when I was in Yale, I thought about the Israeli democracy. I don't know how to define democracy anymore. I mean, I, I understand the essence of democracy, but I don't know how it uh, implicates in the world today, okay? The idea of territory. We talk about territory, but what is the meaning of territory in times that in the digital world, you live in a in a sense of no territory. I mean, you can live everywhere, every time, anytime. So I think that today we really redefine these fundamental ideas of space and time as Immanuel Kant called it. I mean, this is the way human beings understand the world through uh, space and time. And we see that the idea of space is changing, fundamentally changing. And also the idea of time is changing, not the days or the years or the minutes, but the tempo of the time, the way time moves, the way we sense time, it's all changing. And I think that when those two powers or those two uh, framework is so fundamentally changing, everything is changing. So implicit in what you are framing there is the proposal that could it be, I'm thinking out loud here, <laughs> could it be that the 21st century, as we move forward, is going to be propelled by those three powers, consciousness, space, and time, and how consciousness reshapes space and time, consciousness being the irreducible 
currency that in the way you are, because in the way you just talked about time and space, the irreducible element in there is consciousness, human consciousness, and how it updates it. I think that every time of how it's uh, it based on the three things that you said, consciousness, time, and uh, space. Think about the 19th century, it's the same. The idea of the trains, as Dickens described it, okay? It's changed people's consciousness. The idea of time, when the big watches were uh, on the buildings because of the trains, it's changed the, the way people see the world. It's changed the people walk, it's changed the all, even in the small things, I mean, the way you live. And in times of how the space is by definition changing, the time is changing. And of course, the consciousness is changing. Think about the 16th century, the revolution of Copernicus. It's the same. At the moment that he changed the story that we tell ourselves, that we are not the center of the universe, but we are only one of the uh, balls that moving around the sun. When he did it, he really changed our consciousness. And by definition, he changed the idea of territory in a lot of ways and the idea of time. I mean, it's always come together. What were for you, moving a little more to the, the personal biographical side of the story, what were for you the, some of the Copernicus moments where you came through a moment of realization that changed your consciousness that you can tell and, and that partly perhaps shapes what you write today. And in a minute, I'll ask you about the, the drive, your, your book. But when you look, reflect on, on your personal journey, what were moments where you said, mm, right, I thought up until now this, and now I'm realizing that the world that I see is different. I had a lot of moments like this. I think it's kind of who I am. I mean, a lot of ways, I think from the age of uh, three or something. But in uh, 2018, I think, I just, I felt really, really strong that people are no longer moved by the story that I still believe in, in a lot of when I believed in then. I mean, I felt that we can read huge uh, headlines in the newspapers about what's going to happen but people don't react like this. I mean, the gap between what the way we live our life and the, what we talked about the way we live our life becomes such a big, huge gap that I couldn't ignore it anymore. I mean, this was a moment for me. It was not a moment, it was a process, but I, I think there was a moment that I saw that people no longer acting as the way we think that we'll act. And I think this is when a paradigm changing. As uh, Thomas Kuhn in his book describes the race of Einstein, I don't know, and the, his theories, it's people don't, didn't get the results that they were expected over and over and over again. And then uh, the paradigm, uh, slowly by slowly, it's crumbling. And I think for me, it was in, a, yes, it was in 2018. The, the, the sense of the paradigm shift, that politics were no longer delivering are looking at no, no longer relevant, no longer yeah. relevant. This is partly idea. partly accelerated by geopolitical events, I imagine, by Europe, by Brexit, by politics in the U.S., and by the the breakdown in, in Israel. But yeah. what you're describing there is a 
is a moment where the, there is a recognition, a point of recognition, that the operating system no longer works and, and we need a, a new operating system. Admittedly, I, I don't even think that it's no longer works. I mean, we're no longer believing. It's, it's much more important. I mean, it's like in, a, in relations, in any kind of relation, when you don't believe anymore to the other side, you know that it's, this is the beginning of the end. I mean, you can't, uh, it may be, it can happen fast, it can happen slow, but you know, this is the beginning of the end when you no longer believe in the other side. And I think this is, for me, this is a basic idea, relations between human beings, between uh, human beings and the stories that they're living, etc., between human beings and the order that they're living, it's based on uh, the idea of uh, believe in the story and in the person in front of you. When you are no longer believe, you don't care anymore if it works or not. It can't work, okay? It can't work. This is something that you must remember. Traveling just an earlier to earlier time in your journey biographically and in your work, what was the formative experience that catalyzed in you your book, The Drive? Well, so at first I said, this is my first novel. I published it in 2011. I was teaching philosophy in Munich, uh, Germany. And uh, it was two years after I finished uh, my uh, serving in the army. And I wanted to write a book about the individual in the world. I mean, it was the story I'll say it in, in a couple sentences. It's about a, a soldier going to, with, with his father to the military psychiatrist because he can't bear anymore the idea of serving in the army. And, uh, but it's not a book about the army. It's a book about how to be individual in the world. I mean, there is a sentence there of uh, Roland Barthes, the French philosopher, who said, uh, I would translate to English, I must protect my right to be a subject. Okay? This is, I must fight on the right to be a subject. And I think this is what I, I try to understand how you can, and I think it's it connected to all what we to all our conversation till now. I still remain a subject in a world that by definition tried to make you to an object. I mean, I want to be the subject of what, my world. This is the idea of individuality, etc. And uh, I wrote it, and it's uh, I must tell you that it got published in the US at the beginning of the COVID. Not a great timing, but still. And, and it got great reviews, but it got one review that I really liked from an Indian magazine who wrote the, that it's like, this is the manuscript of how to be an individual in the world today. And I thought that when I wrote about this, I didn't think about the nation state and I didn't think about all the trends and all that's going on. But I think I felt something that start then and it become really relevant now that we are fighting on our freedom and on our right to be a subject in the world today. And it's not something that it's, uh, you know, in the 20th century, the state were the agent of the freedom in the world, the nation state, the idea of the nation state, the liberal order, etc. In nowadays, as I see it, it become almost the enemy of the idea of freedom. And we must protect our freedom as a subject in the world, as an individual in the world, in order not to become a, you know, we're moving towards 
they write a lot. We're moving towards uh, the ideas of Chinese totalitarianism, and we must to protect our subjective in the world. So this is what the book is all about. I'll want to circle in a minute to, to your observation of China and the, the increasing collision between the West and, and China, but um, still to weave the threads of the story you just shared. So if a central plot line is the fight for freedom, the desire to, to remain or to discover even the, the greater power of being a subject and being an individual. And you said earlier that you have also an observation of, of a social network and its impact. Place these two characters for me in the story. Because we are individuals, each one of us, we can have our own, not just page on Facebook, we can have our own YouTube channel and so on. And yet there is a conundrum of how that plays on the social media and how much we are shaping the social media and how much it shapes back our consciousness. Give me the, the commentary, the story that as you see it. So of course there is uh, again relations between from us to our social media and uh, back but I think that when you check it in the end it's the sh- social media gave us the, our voice to share our thoughts to share uh, the old big revolutions of Me Too and the conversations around climate change and only the way to talk with one another and to compare uh, the price that we pay, it's all an outcome of uh, social media. And I think that in today's atmosphere, we must remember it when we criticize and we there is what to criticize to, in the social media. I mean, we must remember that there, they are, as I see it, a lot of powers who would do a lot of things in order to delete all this big revolution of the social media. I mean, it changed, as we spoke, we changed our life in such a fundamental way because we, because we start to share our thoughts one with another. And uh, when I talk about freedom, I talk about the powers who try to up this change, talking about uh, delete Facebook, talking about the idea those ideas are not different from uh, what China did with Jack Ma. It's the same idea that try to make those corporates weaker. And I think that uh, I would say it like this. I prefer a strong corporate. I know it's provoking saying I prefer a strong corporate than a strong state. I mean, a corporate, I can leave. State, when it becomes total, I won't have anything to do. So you are revealing your point of view in there about the, what you describe as totalitarian China. But when you look at the power and the rise of China and its collision with the West, how do you tell that story? Because you're not a futurist, but you are always inquiring into how the plot line will evolve. So I think that fundamental distinction between China and the liberal order were always the question of freedom, right? I mean, in the liberal order, we thought that in order to create a economic growth, we must give freedom to people. This was a basic idea. And then China came and not really, but in a way proved that you can create an economic growth without giving freedom. And this idea of taking the freedom out of people and not paying the price of the lack of freedom 
become, I think, very attractive to a lot of older people who anyway understands or feel that they have become less and less relevant and therefore much weaker. So in this combination between the two, you can see how these Chinese ideas of totalitarianism become something that it's no longer a big no-no to say in, a liberal, in the liberal conversation. And this is what I think it's very, I find it uh, very scary. I mean, in a lot of ways, I don't think that there is a big fight between America and China. There's both in the same side against the revolutions that we talk about it here. Given the way you describe the- I'm the sorry pure... that I'm terrifying your listeners. I mean- It's good. It's all part of uh, opening our eyes to uh, seeing the world through different eyes and, and through different stories. Just staying for a minute with your comment about social media, I'm, I'm curious, how do you manage the psychology of a columnist? Um, do you read all the, all the comments under your column? Do you process uh, those or, or do you uh, choose to ignore them? Because uh, one of the challenges, one of the interesting comments about that, uh, that we need to reflect, given the personal exposure to so many people, like you have many, many thousands of people reading your columns. So your nervous system, the evolutionary biology of, of your nervous system, even if you were part of a large tribe, you needed to historically deal with the tribe, but now you need to deal with, with many thousands, maybe sometimes tens and hundreds of thousands of people expressing a point of view about what you said. How do you manage the power of it? It can be addictive. For you to be creative, you need to find a strategy how to to process through that, what's your way? So I first say that I really believe that my column, it's a, a tool of conversation. I mean, from the beginning, I gave my email address in the end of the column. And I love when people write to me, they write a lot. And I don't read the comments in the newspaper, I mean, in the website, but I do share my column in, the, in Facebook. And there, I not only read the comments, I try to react and uh, create a conversation because I believe I'm no longer, you know, I give lectures. And when people invite me to lecture, I say, I no longer know how to give a lecture. I can create a conversation. Let's talk. And I really believe that in what we said about moving from craft to mass production to craft again, it's this, in the same idea. I no longer know how to give a, I don't know how to define it, a, a lecture that it's, I only give information to the crowd. No, I know how to talk. I know how to understand and how to listen. And in the column, it's the same. I mean, it's not only me telling you what to think. We're trying to think together about the world, about the situation, whether you like it or not, whether you believe me, whether you're not. But I mean, it's a tool for conversation to me. Yeah, that's very powerful for me. The, the line about uh, create new futures um, in the book I wrote is, is how we change the world uh, through conversation. And um, what you are framing here is the idea that in the ideological age, Okay, answers contain the power. And often the, those were fanatic answers. We now know that all these answers were too simplistic, but they worked for that time or for a period of time. And so much of what you are describing reflects that the power moved from having answers to creating questions and creating new questions as conversation tools, as story making tools. 
I'm running a very lucrative consulting practice, as, as you know, not on the premise of the answers that I have because I don't, but on the premise of the questions that I ask and on how I ask these questions and on the ecology of inquiry that I enable for these teams. If you told me 25 years ago that these large corporations will write me these big checks for the questions I ask them, I would say you're a liar. I wouldn't believe that, but it's a proof point that just through the experience of one person, I'm obviously not, not the only person, there are many people who are able to catch the, that transformative arc of the last two, three, four decades, that so much of the self-invention and the discovery of, of new, as you just said, it's not about you giving a lecture, it's about you framing a new conversation with your audience and inviting them to become characters in the stories you tell together with them, you co-create with them a new story. It actually, it connected to what we said about the distinction between technological enterprise and conceptual enterprise. In technological enterprise, create products, create answers, but conceptual enterprise create big new questions. This is a way to create a new world. Literature, it's only about questions. It's not about answer. Culture in general, it's about questions. You create worlds by using questions, not by using uh, answers. And so I totally agree, of course. What for you is the place of, I'm gonna use this word and, and I'm gonna frame it inside everything we are describing and inside your map of meaning. What for you is the place of the spiritual realm or the spirit, and I don't mean it necessarily in the religious sense, but in the sense of the search to discover what's beyond the here and now, perhaps the search to discover consciousness, whatever way you define the spirit and the spiritual. I had another portals conversation with somebody a few weeks ago and he said he defines spirit as the in-betweenness, like when two people are in a dialogue, like the two of us now, the space in between us, the the power of the conversation and the search to map meaning, he said, is for him where spirit uh, reveals itself. But in the bigger picture of your inquiry and how you map meaning and philosophy, map for me the place of spirit and the spiritual and perhaps even the, the religious inside that. I think that there is much more than what we see and sense in the world that we must recognize that we are only a small part. And I think this is where spirit take place in my experience. I mean, you asked me before about how I would uh, define people who are much more creative, etc. And I told you that the understanding that they live inside the story. When you understand that you live inside the story, you understand that there, there is a lot of other stories around you. And you're always in conversation with them. You're always in relations with them. And this moment when your story meets other story, this is for me experience of a, a spiritual experience. I mean, you talked about questions. Questions by definition, it's a spirituality experience because you ask something the world and then you get the feedback. The time when you ask something in the world and you've got the feedback, this is a, a spiritual experience. This is why culture is about questions. I would call it a 
a note partitura, how do you say it, a score. It's not a music. It's not a musical. It's not a musical score, or it is a yes. musical. It it is okay. So when you write a novel, you write a, a musical score. The reader plays it to to his ears, and every reader plays it different. And the moment between what you wrote or the questions that you ask or I ask, and the answers that we get, this is a where uh, spirituality takes place in the world. That's beautiful. So it's the interpretation of the story. This is so curious. Th there is uh, this idea that someone said once that if earlier centuries were centuries of letters, that late 20th century and early 21st century, because of the prominence of uh, the computing revolution, will perhaps be a century of numbers. Given everything you are describing, I'm prone to say no. Actually, it's more a century of images and visions. And how do we create images, create stories that connect with people's minds and hearts? That is what I hear in, in when you describe when your story connects with another story. There is actually a spiritual experience. I mean, this is the... People who talk about the times of numbers, I think they're, not, they're really not understanding the spirit of our time. I mean, numbers become less and less important. I think technology can do the numbers for us, but what technology can't replace, it's our ability to create stories. I mean, this is, if you would ask me to define the essence of a human being, it's the, the power to create stories. When we understand it, we can understand all the trends that are happening now that really accurate what it means to be a human being. A curious question, a surprise curious question. If you need to choose one biblical figure that you most identify with, who would you choose? I have a guess, but I, I want to say what would you say? Okay. I love the prophets. I mean, they're all by their opposition to the world. I really identified with this uh, idea, uh, moral idea and existential idea of being opposition to the world. I mean, this is something that uh, I admire and I try to be like this, standing. There is a sentence of uh, Jean-Paul Sartre, the French philosopher who said, the author is the ultimate uh, traitor because he's all the time inside and outside. And I think this position of being inside the story, being committed to the story, but still have the ability to look at it from outside, this was the power of the prophets, and I really I admire them also. Yes. What was your guest? I thought you will say, it's similar to the prophets, but I thought you, you might say Yosef for interpreting the dreams of... Oh. Yeah. Closing question, Yeah, uh, This has been a, a fascinating exploration. What do you hope to be writing about in five years and in 10 years' time? I really hope that I will be able to write. I'm working on a, a big book that will describe what we're talking about now. I mean, I'm not trying to predict what's going to happen. I think that we can't. But I really think that we must define the moments that we're standing here now. I mean, because what we talked about, 
we still think through the old context and we are not understanding the new context that we are facing with. And I think this is what I'm trying to write about and trying to define, give people the tool to understand that we are not able to understand, okay? That we, are, we don't know, that we must ask questions, that we must create a new platforms or a new infrastructures in order to create the new story. Because if we're trying now to find the magical solutions, we will, by definition, will fail. But if we understand that we are not able to find the solutions now, we are only able to start thinking, marking what doesn't work, start listening to people, start to try to understand deeper uh, sense of our uh, soul, I will say, only if we do this, I think we'll be able to create a new relevant story. And we must remember that there are a lot of powers in the world who do understand that the new story has been written now. And if we won't do it, other powers with other interests will do it and uh, it will be a big loss for us. The, the, I imagine the great challenge in trying to put in a unified book, a theory of everything, kind of a book about this current time, is that you're trying to define something that almost escapes definition because the very nature of what you're describing in this idea of shape-shifting consciousness and evolving from one story to the next by itself, as the descriptor, as the character of the time, by itself resist definition. That's the beauty I imagine of, of having a column to write because you, you get to write every other week a, a new chapter of a story, but putting it together in a, in a book, that too, the construct of a book may evolve. You may have a digital copy of the book that you continue to evolve over time. Of course, but in, in what you said before, I think that I love the example of Immanuel Kant, actually, we mentioned him before that he, he creates a new modern philosophy, but how he created it? Not by, by saying something new about the world. He said, I can't tell you anything about the world. I only know how to criticize. And he wrote the criticized three books of criticism about the world, about what's happening. And I think that in times of how, in time of fundamental changes, we must remember that our uh, survival and growth tool it's not offering a new solutions now magical solutions at that time no stop and criticize the world what i see do i see the right things do i feel the world do i really feel the world how do i uh, translate it into a a new forms of thinking how i create a new language etc and i think that you know a uh, big revolutions creates not from the solutions, but from the questions, but from the criticism. I really believe in it. Here is my question. Is this an, a revolutionary age or is this a transformation age? Because maybe they're not the same. I think that in a lot of ways, you know, this is uh, the sense of humor of God. It goes together in a lot of ways. I mean, every big transform has it's a revolutionary characters, but I think that it's our, our choice to decide if we want to be more in the revolutionary side or in the transformational side. And I think is 
we, we begin our talk with the flood. This is our choice to, in a lot of ways, bring the floods, bring the flood and then move the, live in the transform time or uh, not seeing what is going on and, uh, and then the flood will come and we won't be prepared. And the implicit message. It's much more violent and revolutionary, etc. And the implicit message is, we are called in this time to build our own Noah Ark, just the Ark now, and collect what we will collect into it. But the place perhaps we begin to do so is, is with our minds, with the stories we tell, and with the people we connect with. I agree, and I think we must remember that the Noah Ark, it's not a content. It's only an infrastructure. Mm. It's only a frame that we Noah was not able to imagine what will happen in the world after the flood. So we create an ark. And then what is going on then, the new story created by the process that's happening in the ark and afterwards. So we must remember that we are not look, looking now for a, a content or a product, okay? We are looking for platforms, we are looking for, for uh, infrastructures that if we'll be free enough and if we'll give uh, the creative minds the tools to create new things and if we will listen to the world, we will find the new story. Thank you. Thank you on this beautiful note. Thank you very much. Thank you, Aviv. Thank you for listening. Aviv always encourages his clients to identify the one or two ideas they can move forward into action immediately. What will you capture and apply today? You can always begin with a small action and then build momentum over time. When you move forward from an idea to action, you get immediate ROI, return on the time you invested, and return of learning. And then the learning cycle builds the success propulsion. One more thing. You can reach Aviv directly by phone and email to discover how he can help you create a new future for your business and organization. Creating your new future can begin today.